Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Welcome to South Point. We are going to be continuing in our Christmas series, Navidad, Why Jesus' Birth Still Matters. Last week we saw that the first reason the birth of Christ is still relevant today is because of light. We live in a dark world. You don't need me to tell you that, not just when it's overcast outside, but, but we live in a morally dark world, a spiritually dark world, a politically dark world, a militarily dark world, a globally dark world, and it is desperate for light. And we were told many, many years ago through the prophet Isaiah that God sees that. He knows it and that he would send light in the form of a small child. Well, this morning we're going to fast forward 800 years from when we were talking about last Sunday, and we're going to see how God brought that about. So I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 39, um, but I want to give you some background to what we're going to be talking about. It's interesting that the birth of Jesus actually begins with another birth, a very unlikely pregnancy. It involved uh, a couple of relatives of Jesus and Jesus' mother, Mary, um, Zechariah, who was a descendant, a direct descendant of Aaron, therefore from the tribe of Levi, and served at the temple in Jerusalem as a priest, as a result. And then also his wife, Elizabeth. They'd been married for a long time. And yet, despite being very godly and very prayerful, they had remained childless. But they'd been praying for years and years, and that desperate yearning to have a child had never died out. Well, one day, when Zechariah was on duty as a priest, because um, the priesthood in Jerusalem at the temple was very interesting, there were only a few priests, and they were the, the, the highest ranking who served year-round at the temple. Most of the priests rotated in shifts, sort of like firemen do. And so it was the time that Zechariah was on duty at the temple, and uh, he was serving uh, there, when, when it came time to offer incense at the altar, this was a very specific part of uh, the worship system of Judaism. Offering incense at the altar was really symbolic. It was a time of prayer for the people who would come to the temple. They would remain in the outer courtyard. And it was a time when people who were desperate for God to do something would come and offer up those prayers. And then the priest would stand before the altar of God and symbolically throw fragrant incense on the coals used for burning the meat of sacrifice. And of course, that incense would, would immediately detonate and begin to send smoke billowing into the sky. And it was a picture, it was a visual image of how prayer worked. And Zechariah, because not everybody got to go and offer the incense, Zechariah, they, they would choose it um, by lot, which... Um, might seem random, but, but it was viewed by the Jews back then as being providential, whose never name came up by the casting of Lot, was believed to be the one God wanted to come and offer incense. And one day, Zechariah's name 
came up. So he entered by himself into the, toward the inner sanctum of the temple. He approaches this uh, bronze altar that's glowing red with these coals. He reaches into the special incense that was for that purpose, and he throws it on, and it begins to rise toward heaven. And suddenly, he's visited by an angelic being. Of course, like anybody who encounters something like that, Zechariah is terrified and awestruck. And the angel who identifies himself as Gabriel has to calm Zechariah down. And then he tells him, I have a message for you. And it's essentially this. Your prayers have been heard and answered by God. Which is ironic because he was right smack dab in the middle of the place where that happened. He offered the incense up symbolically, which represented prayer. I'm sure that included his prayer. I'm sure his wife was probably in the outer courtyard of the women, and she was offering her prayer, and it was the same prayer that they had been praying for years. God, please, give us a child. And now this angel shows up, and he tells Zechariah, that's what's going to happen. You are, in fact, going to have a child. You're going to have a son, and he's going to grow up to be a delight for you your wife, and he's also going to be incredibly special before God. The angel even tells him, here's what you're to name him. His name is going to be John, because God, it's going to, his name is going to be in, in honor of the only one, God himself, who can make these kinds of miracles possible. In Hebrew, the word John is actually... Yahuhanan, and it just means Yahweh is gracious, which what a great name for a boy who's coming to a couple who are now elderly, long past the time when people have children, but who've been praying and now God answers. And yet, despite this incredible encounter with this angelic being, and despite being told that his prayers were answered. And despite the fact that he had been right in the process of doing that when the angel came, it seemed so incredible, it seemed so impossible that Zechariah just can't seem to wrap his heart around it. He struggles with the faith to believe that what the angel said was true. And so he does something very foolish. He, he basically demands a sign. He says to Gabriel, well, how will I know that this is going to happen? The angel responds, well, all right, you want a sign? God will give you a sign, but it's also going to serve as a rebuke to you for your lack of faith. What's wrong with you, basically? All right, you want a sign? Here's your sign. You're not going to be able to speak until this baby arrives. And sure enough, Gabriel then leaves, and Zechariah exits the inner temple area, and he goes out to where the people are waiting. By now, they're already getting concerned because this conversation 
with Zechariah has taken a while, and really, offering incense was a relatively quick procedure. And he'd been gone a long time, so they were starting to worry about him. And when he finally shows up, the other priests, the people in the courtyard are curious. What happened? What took you so long? And Zechariah is filled with all kinds of excitement, and he wants to tell the people what had just occurred, but he has a problem. He tries to speak, and nothing will come out. And so he starts gesturing, you know, probably an ancient form of charades, trying to figure out a way to communicate. Think about that. How would you communicate that message if you suddenly couldn't speak? So he's trying everything he can, but all he's doing is confusing the people. Nevertheless, once his temple duties are ended, he returns home. And I have no doubt that he somehow communicated with his wife what had happened, probably by writing it out. And apparently Elizabeth didn't have any problem believing it, because it isn't too much longer after that that she gets pregnant. And then she immediately goes into seclusion for the first five months of her pregnancy, probably because she just doesn't want to become a spectacle. Imagine grandma showing up at the H-E-B, great big pregnant. A few questions you might have, a little curiosity as to what's going on. So she goes into seclusion. Meanwhile, about a month later, in a very distant city called Nazareth, one of Zechariah and Elizabeth's relatives, a young girl by the name of Mary, is minding her own business. She's very excited because she's engaged, soon to be married to the love of her life, a man named Joseph. And out of the blue, she too receives an angelic visit from the same angel. He identifies himself as Gabriel. And then she's informed that God has something special for her too. She has been chosen to conceive a child who will be both the son of God and the eternal heir to David's throne promised long ago. Mary was from the tribe of Judah, even though she lived in the north in the district. Remember that from last week? She was from the tribe of Judah, but not just from the tribe of Judah. She was also a direct descendant from King David. And she's told that she's going to bear the child that's going to be the promised child. The Hebrews refer to as Meshiach. It just means anointed one, or another way of saying the king. You're going to give birth to the king, the one everybody's been waiting for. When Mary asks how that could be possible, given the fact that she's still a virgin and she's never had relations with a man, the angel explains that the birth is going to be miraculous in nature. And then the angel says, you will know that what I'm telling you is true when you go and visit your relative, Elizabeth. And when you get there, you're going to find out something very, very interesting. She's pregnant, too. And then you'll know when you go to visit that all of this stuff is just as I'm telling you. And so with that, 
Mary humbly pledges herself as the Lord's servant. She accepts the angel's message as true. And then she begins packing for a visit to go and see Elizabeth's condition for herself. Which brings us to our passage, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, when it says that she went with haste, it meant she went with haste. She hurried along. We're told that when Mary received the angelic visit that Elizabeth was six months pregnant. We're also told later on that after she arrived, she stayed with Elizabeth for three months until John was born, which means she wasted little time. It's very likely that Mary, after receiving this visit from this angel, left within a day or two, which to me presents all kinds of questions that aren't answered in the text. Here's one. In all likelihood, Mary is a very young girl, probably in her mid-teens, because that's about when young girls got married in this culture, which meant that she was still under the direct guardianship of her parents, which meant she couldn't just decide to go visit someone who lived far away. She had to have her parents' permission, which means she had to explain why she needed to go and visit their relative, Elizabeth, which then broaches the question, what did she say? How would you explain that? First of all, the fact that Elizabeth was pregnant seems to be news to Mary. The angel goes out of his way to tell it to her, which means it was probably would have been news to her parents too. How did she tell them? You know, you're not going to believe this, but our relative Elizabeth is pregnant and I would like to go and visit her and check on her and maybe help take care of her until the baby's born. How do you explain that? We're not told. My speculation is, is that she told her parents the truth. Mary is innocent and a very honest and godly young woman. Think about it. God had to select somebody through whom his son, the most important figure in human history, the pivot point, he had to find one girl to entrust his son to. He picked her. I don't think her first act after being visited by this angel would have been to go to her parents and lie. She, I think, told them everything. I think she told them, Mom, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but I was visited by an angel. And this angel was Gabriel. The same Gabriel that in the Old Testament scrolls we read about spoke to Daniel. That same angel came to me and he told me, I'm the one. I'm the one that's going to give birth to the son of David, to the son of God, Meshach, the anointed one, the king. And the angel told me that if that basically the message he gave me would be demonstrated as true when I went to go visit Elizabeth. So that's what I want to do. Would that be all right with you? And somehow she must have been persuasive because her parents allow her to go. Now, she wouldn't have traveled by herself. 
It's very likely that, that once they gave her permission, they immediately began searching for either family or friends who were already heading south because travel back then was lengthy and dangerous. But somehow she travels all the way from Nazareth in the district down to Judea to visit this relative. And then we're told that she went to a town in Judah in the hill country. The hill country would have been the Judean hills, which surrounds Jerusalem. We don't know specifically the town that she went to, but I think it's very likely, and so do most theologians, that it was, in fact, Hebron, which is a little city just south of Jerusalem. The reason why is, it goes back to the Old Testament. It has to do with, if you remember, the tribe of Levi was the only one that wasn't given any property in Israel. The other tribes were told to make cities for them within their particular tribal regions. And the reason for that is because the Levites were to be the priests. And God wanted the priesthood spread throughout the nation. He didn't want it centrally located. And so he put priests everywhere the people were, which tells you something about how God wants people who serve and minister in his name to operate. He wants them among the people. They need to be front and center and available. And so it's very likely, because Hebron was, was one of the chief priestly cities in Judah, that that's where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. And if that's the case, between Nazareth and Hebron is about 100 miles. It represented a four- to five-day journey. But Mary makes the trip because she's anxious to see what's going on with Elizabeth. Verse 40. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, what's interesting is that all it says is she greeted Elizabeth. We don't read about any formal introductions. We don't read about Mary saying, um, I'm related to you and here's how, and then going down the genealogy to try to explain. So it seems to indicate that there was some familiarity, that there didn't need to be formal introductions. There didn't need to be explanation of how we're related. So they weren't distant relatives, I think. They were actually probably closer relatives. Some people speculate that Mary's mother and Elizabeth were sisters, and so therefore Mary is Elizabeth's niece. We don't know that for certain, but whatever it was, they were closely related. And it says that when Mary got there, she greeted Elizabeth. The, the greeting, the common greeting, every single time between Jews back then and today would have been shalom. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby is John the Baptist. The baby is about six months old. The baby is still in the womb, but he hears Mary's voice. Is that possible? Of course we know that today, that children in the womb can hear voices. They can even recognize them. Now, Mary's voice would have been unfamiliar to John the Baptist, and yet something about her greeting, and it may have just been one word, shalom. Or if they were in Texas, maybe shalom y'all, but just shalom probably. And all of a sudden, this baby in Elizabeth's womb starts bouncing around and moving and getting very, very excited. Interesting that even, even within the womb, John the Baptist celebrates the arrival of Christ. And Christ is at this time, at best, an embryo. 
And yet, this baby John knows what's going on. It says that Mary, or excuse me, that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This term, filled with the Holy Spirit, particularly in the Old Testament, um, was usually accompanied by certain things. When someone was filled with the Holy Spirit back then, uh, the Holy Spirit would usually come upon them and then begin to inspire certain behaviors. One of the most common was that person would either begin to celebrate something God had done or to begin to speak for God. We can read about that in Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 24, 1 Samuel 10, 18, 19. Over and over again, that's what would happen. And here, the same thing happens. Elizabeth, because she's filled with the Holy Spirit, is going to begin to speak prophetically on behalf of God. Why is that important? Well, first of all, it's been a while since God has spoken. The last Old Testament prophet, most people believe, was Malachi. And he lived during the, the time after the Jews returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and started rebuilding it, about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. After that, there's no recorded scripture about God speaking to his people. There was a long dry spell. And now, all of a sudden, God has opened up the floodgates and is beginning to communicate directly with his people again. Twice already, he has sent an angel to bring a message, and now he's about to use a human agent, Elizabeth, to speak for him. Now, what's interesting is why doesn't God speak through Zechariah, her husband? He's the priest. You would think he would be the one. Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, real obvious, he can't speak. God's already cut that nonsense off, and why? Number two, because of his lack of faith. Lack of faith always interferes in us hearing from God, and it especially interferes with us communicating on his behalf. And so because Zechariah is kind of out of commission, he speaks through Elizabeth. Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, it's interesting. Elizabeth doesn't just speak in a normal tone or in a hushed tone. She's yelling, you're blessed. Of all women, you are blessed. And blessed is what you're carrying in your womb. What an amazing thing that Elizabeth already knows. Mary's pregnant. And she would have also known Mary's situation. She's not married yet. She would have known Mary's character She hasn't been immoral. What's going on within Mary is miraculous. Just as miraculous as the baby that she herself is waddling around with right now. God has done some amazing stuff in these two women. And now Elizabeth is acknowledging it. And you know what's interesting is that the angel had told Mary, when you go see Elizabeth, you're going to know that what I'm telling you is true. But not just because you're going to see her pregnant. Also because of what Elizabeth is going to share with you. The way she's going to encourage you. The way she's going to tell you things that she would have no earthly way of knowing. You're going to know God's doing something special. 
Being in tune with God's Spirit. I shared with, this with you a couple of weeks ago. Being in tune with God's Spirit allows you to see and to know things that other people don't. It allows you to see things that other people miss. Verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth, continuing on, says, why is this, in, in inference to what she's saying, why is this honor being granted to me? Now, this is a real reversal of the normal code, culturally speaking. Elizabeth is much older than Mary. And therefore, in this culture, people who were older were given great respect it's, it's the exact opposite of our culture today. Most young people today look at older people and just are dismissive. You're old, you're old-fashioned, you're out of date. I don't care about the past. I don't want to hear. I'm not going to stay off your lawn. You know, there, there isn't a lot of, of respect, of, you know, from the younger to the older. Matter of fact, we elevate youth today. Youth are the ones that we need to be listening to. Youth are the ones that need to lead the way. And the elderly, ah, just get out of the way and drink your insure. And, and that's, that's really sad that we feel that way, that way but it's really, really um, kind of true. Well, back in these days, it wasn't that way at all. People who were older were, were thought very highly of. They were highly respected. They were listened to. And young people always knew that you're supposed to show deference to the older people, that you're supposed to, to pour the accolades out on them. And yet, here is Elizabeth, the older, pouring out accolades on this young teenage girl. She's 15. And yet, Elizabeth is praising the fact that she gets to be in her presence, that she came to visit, that God brought her there. What amazing humility. There's also apparently no jealousy about Mary's pregnancy either. I mean, most moms, if they've been waiting that long to have a baby, they aren't shy about it. They're excited, and they're telling everybody about their baby, and oh, the baby kicked last night, and oh, the, the baby's going to grow up to be this, and there's no jealousy. There's, there's, there's no envy. There, there's no, nothing from Elizabeth. Oh, you think your baby is big. Wait till you hear what the angel said about my baby. Instead, there's no conversation about her own child. All of the focus on this, on this young girl who isn't even showing yet. And she's heaping praise on her because of what God has done in her life. What an amazing humility. And how rare that is. Most of the time, if God does something special in our life, we want to shout it from the rooftops. We want everybody to know what God has done. And here she is, quiet as a mouse and Keeping effusive praise on this young girl. And you want to know something? Later on, her son is going to grow up to be an amazing guy. He's a firebrand. He is unique. One of the most completely fearless men to walk the face of the earth. He was no respecter of persons. He spoke the truth even when it got him in trouble. He had passion for God. He burned his life like a candle at both ends. And most of the time, when God does something special through someone like that, even Jesus heaps praise on John the Baptist later on, says there's never been a greater person on the face of the earth 
than John the Baptist. Think about all the people that had been born before then. Moses, Elijah, David, Solomon. Amazing. John the Baptist tops the list. That's the kind of praise that would tend to go to your head. When God does something amazing in your life, it tends to make you arrogant. Even Paul struggled with that. That's why God had to give him a thorn in the flesh. And yet John the Baptist had the most amazing mix of passion and fearlessness and spiritual purpose and focus and humility. John was amazing. John, John would say about Jesus, I'm, I'm not fit to untie his sandals. John would repeat his old mom's words when Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And John says, what are you doing coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. Where did John learn all that? From his mom. Moms, never forget the impact you can have on your little ones. And then Elizabeth says that the mother of my Lord should come here. The word my Lord was a court expression. It was another way of saying my king, my monarch. Verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. How interesting that as soon as John hears Mary's voice, he knows what's going on and begins to celebrate. You know, so much for the modern mentality about the unborn, huh? That they feel nothing, they know nothing, they remain unviable until someone decides that they're human. Luke 1.15 says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in utero. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Yet another prophetic declaration. Elizabeth knows. Keep in mind, as far as we know, what has Mary said to Elizabeth? Shalom. And yet Elizabeth knows because she's filled with the Holy Spirit all this stuff. And she knows not only that Mary received the visit from the angel, not only what the context of what the angel said was, not only what the result of that was, but also that Mary had believed it, which lies in sharp contrast to what her own husband had done. Not to, you know, drag Zechariah too much, but he hadn't believed. He had struggled with faith. Mary hadn't. And think about the difference. Mary's a young girl. Zechariah was an elderly man and a priest. If anybody should have been expecting God to answer the prayer, if anybody should have been thrilled at the visit of the angel, and if anybody should have believed what was said, it should have been him. But it wasn't. It was this little girl. And it said that Mary believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken, which is the essence of faith. You know, we get confused about faith sometimes. We tend to think that faith is knowing what God has said. Or that faith is believing that what God has said is true. But genuine faith always goes beyond that. When there's real faith, it generates transformation from within. 
It's acting upon what God has said. It's acting upon what you believe to be true. It always inspires action. Listen, the devil knows what God has said. The devil believes that it's true, probably more than you and I. But he never acts on it. Genuine faith does. How does joy work? Let's close this out real fast from the passage. Three things that are involved in joy. True joy of Christmas. And boy, do we need more of that these days. Listen, I struggle with what I'll call the Scrooge complex. I struggle with Christmas is an expense. And I'm an old guy, and so by definition, old guys are cheap. They hate spending money. And, and so it's easy to look at Christmas as a hassle. Ah, I got to climb and put the lights up. Ah, we got to go to this drama. Ah, church. All the music, all the expense. And it's easy for joy to get wrung out. We ought to have joy the same way John the Baptist had joy, the kind of joy that makes you jump up and down. It involves three things. Number one, being filled with the Spirit, filling. One of the byproducts of the Holy Spirit coming to visit anybody is joy. We're told it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you don't have any joy at Christmas, is it not reasonable to ask whether or not you're filled with the Spirit? And I don't mean the Christmas Spirit. I mean the Holy Spirit, capital S Spirit. Acts 13.52 says that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The two always go hand in hand. We ought to have more joy, especially at Christmas. What better time to have joy? Christ has come, like the song said. When you're out at work, when you're at school, when you're going shopping, there ought to be a smile on your face. You should be quick with Merry Christmas. You should be charitable. You shouldn't have to be visited by three ghosts. In order to develop Christmas joy. The second thing that joy involves is, is favor. It's gratitude. It's awareness of what God has done. It's easy for the real profundity of Christmas to get lost in all of the backwash of the nonsense surrounding it. Elizabeth said, why is this honor granted to me that Jesus should come, should stagger your mind and fill you with joy? 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When John the Baptist was leaping within his mother's womb at the arrival of this teenage girl, carrying the most incredible miracle of human history. He understood joy. Do you? And then lastly, it involves faith. Mary had faith. She believed what the angel said, but not just believed it, she acted on it. If what you know about God does nothing to change you, then what good does it do? And do you not have the right to ask yourself whether or not there's any reality of it within you? James talks about that. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. 
that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Ah, dear ones, this should be a joyous time for us. It ought to be a time of celebration. I don't know what your tradition is, what your celebration is, but I know you should be joyful. This is good news. Could we not use a little bit of this? God has sent light. God has sent joy. Let's enter into it. Joy can be surprising, unexpected, but I'll tell you one thing it always is, infectious. True joy, the joy of the Lord, is an infectious thing. It's one of the most appealing things that we can offer to a lost world that is just trying to grub through life with no hope, no expectancy. You and I have the answer. We have the solution. We know the child. And if we take him out there, you might be surprised at the reaction you get. I'll close with this. Back in 2012, the um, Philadelphia Opera Company got together and they wanted to do what they called a random act of culture. It was essentially a flash mob um, that goes into a public place and does something that causes people to be surprised and, and entertained. In this case, they decided to go to the um, downtown Macy's store. This is a huge store in Philly and where hundreds of people, hundreds go every day to shop. And they decided that they were going to go there and they were going to sing. So they took 600 choir members, 650 actually, and they sort of interspersed them in the crowd of shoppers. And then they decided to sing a song. And the results were amazing. Take a look at this. <laughs> 